Hello friends and welcome to this edition of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, February 27th, 2023. Your reader today is Dave Sowerman and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Pretty Handicapped. Our first story, Sioux City Council to vote on rezoning request for Floyd Boulevard Strip Mall. The story comes to us from Dolly Butts. The Sioux City Council will be asked to approve a rezoning request on Monday so that a strip mall and a restaurant can be built on a 2.8 acre tract of land on Floyd Boulevard. Sioux City businessman Dolph Ivener is asking that a 2809 Floyd Boulevard, that's the address, 2809 Floyd Boulevard, which is recently or currently zoned business park, be rezoned as general commercial, according to city documents. Restaurants are prohibited in business park. General commercial allows for a broad range of smaller and larger scale commercial use types situated on parcels that have on-site parking. The documents state that a rezoning request is consistent with the city's comprehensive plan, while the proposed land use, a strip mall, is consistent with several new developments along Floyd Boulevard. Homes on Anna Court would be 35 or more feet above the commercial development and should have no impact on future residential development, according to the documents. This makes a nice flat area for commercial development. There is a 35-foot elevation change in the rear of that lot, which will buffer the commercial development area from the future residents on Anna Circle, according to the documents. The main access point to the site from Floyd Boulevard would likely be at least 200 feet north of Blue Drive, according to the documents. Currently, there is no sidewalk along Floyd Boulevard. A 10-foot wide sidewalk would be required if the strip mall is built. Depending on grade and the final location of the detention pond, there may be an access to the site from Blue Drive at least 40 feet west of Floyd Boulevard, according to the documents. Our next story, a victim suspected Friday night stabbing is identified. The story comes to us from Mason Doctor. Authorities have released the name of the suspect and victim of a fatal stabbing on 11th Street Friday night. The victim was Anthony, excuse me, William Anthony Harlan Jr., age 48. He's listed in court documents as a transient of Sioux City. Sioux City police have arrested Nathaniel John Parker III, 30 years old, of Sioux City in connection with the stabbing. He faces charges including first-degree murder and possession of a controlled substance, methamphetamine. Officers were dispatched to an apartment building at 414 11th Street in Sioux City at around 9.48 p.m. Friday and found Harlan suffering multiple stab wounds, according to Sioux City Police. He was taken to Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center, where he later succumbed to his injuries. According to a criminal complaint filed in the case, officers found Harlan just inside the door of apartment number six, having been stabbed and apparently unconscious. 
Three other males were inside the apartment, including Parker, who was attempting to conceal himself in the bathroom, according to the complaint. Harlan had been getting into the back seat of a vehicle at 623 14th Street at around 9.20 p.m. Friday, shortly before the stabbing. The vehicle drove to the apartment building. While they were in the vehicle together, Parker stabbed Harlan three times in the upper left chest, according to the criminal complaint. Parker then pulled Harlan from the vehicle, carried him several feet, and threw him to the ground. Parker and another male were seen carrying Harlan into the apartment. Video surveillance footage showed a long bayonet-style knife sticking out of Parker's coat pocket. Officers later found the knife wrapped in a red shirt that appeared to be wet with blood, concealed in the ceiling tiles of apartment number six. Officers also learned that Parker had been showing the knife off to other people in the day before the incident. During an interview with police, Parker admitted that he was high and that he had methamphetamine on him, hidden between his buttocks, according to another criminal complaint. A small bag of white crystalline substance that tested positive for methamphetamine, weighing about 0.85 grams, was found. Our next story, a suspect and victims in a Sergeant Bluff shooting have been identified. Sergeant Bluff, Iowa, the names of the suspect and victims of a Friday evening shooting in rural Sergeant Bluff have been released. The suspect in the case has been identified as Raymond T. Rogers, age 43, of Sergeant Bluff. Woodbury County Sheriff Chad Sheehan said at a press conference on Sunday. Rogers is currently hospitalized in Omaha with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The victims are Ashley M. Rogers, age 40, of Sergeant Bluff, and Jarlie E. Jones age 50 of Sergeant Bluff. Jones was pronounced dead at the scene of the shooting on Friday. Ashley Rogers is hospitalized at Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center. Woodbury County Sheriff's deputies were called to 2169 Buchanan Avenue, rural Sergeant Bluff, at around 6.47 p.m. Friday for a report of shots fired. Deputies found a 12-year-old boy at the residence and rescued him they also found two men, Raymond Rogers and Jones, and a woman, Ashley Rogers, all suffering gunshot wounds. Raymond Rogers' wound was apparently self-inflicted. As of Sunday afternoon, no charges have been filed in the case, according to Sheehan. I've been in communication with the county attorney, Mr. Loomis, throughout the weekend. He has been very beneficial in guiding us and assisting in answering questions as we continue to process the information and conduct our investigation, he said. Sheehan said Raymond and Ashley Rogers were estranged spouses. We've not been able to confirm whether it was technically a legal separation, but estranged for, I have been told, a year or more, Sheehan said of their relationship. The sheriff did not provide information on Jones's relationship with the others, except to confirm that he lived at the residence where the shooting occurred, as did Ashley Rogers. Raymond Rogers was listed as residing along with the old Lakeport Road in Sergeant Bluff. 
Sheehan said it would be a fair characterization to call the incident a murder attempted suicide. Sheehan condemned his or commended his deputies for their speedy action at the scene. From the time the deputies ex exited their squad cars until the time they were going inside the door was less than 30 seconds, Sheehan said. From the time that they looked through a window and saw the injured person, it was three seconds. There was absolutely zero hesitation. They took no time to worry about their safety, completely disregarded their own safety, and they went inside that home not knowing if the scene was secured or if the shooting was over. The sheriff also commended the 12-year-old, whose name will not be released, for his own bravery in calling the authorities. Sheehan added that there had been some early confusion about the boy's age. The boy had apparently mistakenly given his age as 11, but had in fact turned 12 years old this month. I have kids of my own, and a couple that are very close in age, Sheehan said. I can't imagine what that young man went through while this was going on, but he had the courage to make the phone call and give us information that was vital to us getting there quickly. Any chance that anyone would have had to survive this incident is due to the courage that this young boy, this young man, exhibited that evening. Our next story, an Ashton man is charged with setting a fire that destroyed a home. The story comes to us from Nick Hytrek. An Ashton man was arrested Friday on suspicion of setting a fire that destroyed his home. The Osceola County Sheriff's Office was notified at about 10.30 in the morning of the fire at 533 5th Street. According to a complaint filed in Osceola County District Court, David Alvarez Jr. admitted to a sheriff's deputy that he had started a fire in the fireplace and then took a broom and started other small fires on the main floor of the home. The fire got out of control and the house was considered a total loss along with all of the property belonging to Alvarez and his girlfriend. Alvarez said he did not know why he set the fires according to the complaint. Alvarez, who is 32 years old, was booked into the Osceola County Jail on charges of first-degree arson and first-degree criminal mischief. His bond was set at $35,000. Our next story, a Laurel Homicide Suspects hearing is delayed. This is, comes to us from Hardington, Nebraska. Arguments to dismiss charges against a woman accused of playing a role in a Laurel, Nebraska quadruple homicide have been delayed while court transcripts are prepared and delivered to her attorney. Carrie Jones was scheduled to appear Monday in Cedar County District Court for a plea in abatement hearing in which her attorney was to seek dismissal of her charges because, he said in a motion filed last week, prosecutors did not present adequate evidence during a preliminary hearing to show there was probable cause that Jones aided and abetted her husband in the August 4 shooting death of Jean Twyford in his Laurel home. Defense attorney Douglas Stratton had requested a transcript of the February 15th preliminary hearing, and on Friday, he asked for a continuance of Monday's hearing to provide more time for the transcript's preparation. District Judge Brian Mesmer 
rescheduled the hearing for March 27th. Jones, who is 43, of Laurel, is charged with first-degree murder, tampering with physical evidence, and being an accessory to a felony. Her case was bound over to district court after the preliminary hearing in which investigators testified Jones had told them Twyford had verbally harassed her for three years and had asked her husband to do something about it. Prosecutors have argued Jones encouraged her husband to kill Twyford. Jones's attorneys argued prosecutors had not shown Jones persuaded her husband to kill Twyford. Twyford, who is 86, was found shot to death along with his wife Janet, who was 85, and their daughter Dana Twyford, who was 55, in their burning home at 503 Elm Street in the early morning hours of August 4th, shortly after firefighters and emergency personnel responded to a fire at 209 Elm Street, and they found the body of Michelle Ebling, age 53, who also had been shot. Ebling lived across the street from Carrie and Jason Jones. Jason Jones, 42 years of age, is charged with four counts each of first-degree murder and use of a firearm to commit a felony, as well as two counts of first-degree arson. Prosecutors have filed notice of intent to seek the death penalty against Jason Jones if he's found guilty of first-degree murder. His attorney has filed a motion to quash portions of Nebraska's death penalty statute saying that they are unconstitutional. Our next story, the Doobie Brothers musical group is bringing their 50th anniversary tour to the Tyson Events Center. The legendary Doobie Brothers will be bringing their 50th anniversary tour to the Tyson Events Center located at 401 Gordon Drive on June 17th. The Doobie Brothers, who are four-time Grammy winners, Grammy Award winners, and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, are back on the road with members Tom Johnston, Michael McDonald, Pat Simmons, and John McPhee for the first time in more than 25 years. Tickets will go on sale at 10 o'clock in the morning, Friday, at primebanktickets.com, tysoncenter.com, or by visiting the Prime Bank box office at the Tyson Events Center. And here's the latest Woodbury County Court report. Before Judge Jeffrey Neary, Darren Kaiser Triplett, age 30, of Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, habitual offender enhancement, sentenced February 21st to 15 years in prison, suspended, two years probation. Austin Richard Mulder, age 36, from Sergeant Bluff, second-degree theft, habitual offender enhancement, sentenced February 20th to 15 years prison, suspended, three years probation. Kyle Eugene Obermeyer, age 36, of Sioux City, eluding credit card fraud, sentenced February 20th to seven years in prison. Dennis James Strickland, age 39, Sioux City, Forgery, fourth degree theft, sentenced February 13th, excuse me, February 20th, five years prison. And Felipe de Jesus Alcatraz, uh, excuse me, Alcarzaz, Jr., age 33, Sioux City, eluding, sentenced February 21, 
75 days in jail. Uh, before Judge Todd Deck, uh, Marcos Ernesto Castellanos, age 21, Sioux City, felon in possession of a firearm, possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance, since February 17th, five years prison. Antonio uh, Zavala, age 28, Sioux City, secondary theft, sentenced February 20th, five years prison. Uh, Luis Enrique Medina Navarro, age 32, of Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third violation, driving while license barred, sentenced February 20th, five years prison, suspended, two years probation on the drug charge, 20 days jail on the driving charge. Matthew Roger Groves, age 29, Sioux City, second degree theft, two counts, eluding, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, since February 17, five years prison, suspended, two years probation. Our next story, a Lincoln man crashes before, after 100 mile per hour pursuit with state patrol, according to authorities. <clears throat> after crashing his Chevrolet pickup truck in North Lincoln on Sunday, a Lincoln man fled the scene. He reached speeds higher than 100 miles per hour before crashing again, following a pursuit with the Nebraska State Patrol, according to authorities. Donald Roth, age 62, was involved in a two-car crash on 27th Street near Interstate 80 at around 3.30 p.m. Sunday, according to the State Patrol in a news release. A trooper patrolling in the area arrived at the crash scene and began to investigate the crash. Roth got back into his Chevrolet S10 pickup and fled north on 27th Street, and the trooper pursued him, according to the patrol. Roth sped north for about four miles before turning east onto Mill Road and then north again on 40th Street before entering a nearby field, according to the news release. The trooper followed Roth into the field and to a nearby driveway where the trooper and Roth collided, the trooper said. Then both the trooper and Roth went back into the field where they crashed into farm equipment. Roth was taken into custody in the rural Lancaster County field before he was transported by a hospital or by a local hospital for treatment of minor injuries, according to the news release. Troopers arrested Roth on suspicion of flight to avoid arrest, driving on a 15-year license revocation, willful reckless driving, leaving the scene of a crash, and criminal mischief. He was booked at the Lancaster County Jail. Our next story, Sioux City legislators take questions about eminent domain, teen labor, and books at the League of Women Voters Forum. Saturday morning, Sioux City Representatives Bob Henderson and J.D. Shulton had the opportunity to field a litany of questions from residents during a forum at the Sioux City Public Museum sponsored by the local chapter of the League of Women Voters. For 90 minutes, the first-term legislators responded to queries about eminent domain, child labor laws, book bans, young people leaving the state, solar energy, minimum wage, nursing home regulations, reorganizing state government, the Department of Revenue, and finding common cause. To open, both Henderson 
a Republican and Shulton, a Democrat, talked about what they've learned after working in Des Moines for more than a month. At my age, it's really nice to be called a freshman. Henderson, a former school teacher, joked, the most important thing that I've had to learn is protocol. Shulton, who ran for Congress in 2018 and 2020, said, being a freshman, there is a lot of cards stacked against me. And being in a minority, it's a double whammy. He then noted that we get to talk and become friends with people who may not always agree with us on every issue. As Shulton and Henderson were both asked questions by the audience of more than 30 people, some of those differences became clearer. On the issue of eminent domain potentially being used for proposed carbon capture pipeline projects in Iowa, Henderson began talking about the uh, pseudoscience of carbon neutrality and how the state's ethanol producers have to appease other markets. Europe is just as woke as California, if not even more, Henderson said. He later mentioned one current proposal in the state legislature would require pipeline companies to obtain 90% of the miles along their proposed route through voluntary easements before being granted eminent domain authority. When Shulton spoke on the matter, he highlighted how the issue doesn't neatly cleave along party lines, and then took the companies behind the pipeline proposals to task for exaggerating the need of such work. One of the bigger people against it has been Stephen King. He's very much against the pipeline, Shulton said, and to talk about the ethanol industry, the one thing I get frustrated with is that they're talking about this as their only livelihood. Karen Heidemann, a member of Sudan Progressive Women's Group, used her turn at the mic to speak on Senate File 167, which would make changes to child labor laws in Iowa. If passed and signed by Governor Reynolds, the bill would allow 14-year-olds to work in freezers and meat coolers. 15-year-olds would be able to load and unload groceries from trucks. 16- and 17-year-olds could serve drinks at bars and restaurants. Henderson said he agreed with Heidemann about having concerns about child safety and that such concerns would need to be balanced with worries over employment in Iowa. A recent report from the United States Department of Labor found the Wisconsin-based Packers Sanitation Services Incorporated to have employed at least 100 children from 13 to 17 years of age in hazardous occupations and had them working overnight shifts at 13 meat processing facilities in eight states, including Nebraska and Minnesota. According to the report, children were working with hazardous chemicals and cleaning meat processing equipment, including back saws, brisket saws, and head splitters. Shulton said the plan is a way for big businesses to get out of paying higher wages. Why pay someone $30 an hour when they can put in a high school kid who doesn't know any better, he asked. Asked about raising the state minimum wage up from $7 and a quarter an hour, as Nebraska and South Dakota have done, Shulton said Iowa should raise wages to compete with its neighbors rather than cut taxes to keep up. As costs go up, wages should go up as well, 
$7.25 is just absolutely ridiculous, he said. Henderson differed with that opinion. Changing minimum wage is as much symbolic as anything, Henderson said. He then told the crowd he'd spent a lot of time researching the issue and found that there were less people working on minimum wage and trying to support a family than might be expected. I'm all in favor of trying to help those 3,000 people, but I'm unwilling to do something that's going to put startup businesses or struggling businesses into a position where they can no longer afford their employees, Henderson said. In January of this year, a piece from the Iowa Capital Dispatch pointed to a state newsroom analysis which found of the 20 states that have failed to raise minimum wage above the federal $7.25 an hour standard, 16 have more than 12% of their children living in poverty. Heidman's husband, Marvin, was later able to ask the two lawmakers about restrictions and parental permission requirements on school books considered to be obscene by community members. Henderson, who taught math for decades, said, there's talk about making sure that the materials we're giving to students in the state of Iowa are appropriate for them, and that there's not any talk about book banning in the state of Iowa. Republican legislators have held hearings about the process public school officials use to review books. In the Waukee School District, the book Gender Queer, which is a memoir about gender identity and sexuality, was removed from the library after complaints by parents. A 10-person committee then recommended keeping the book in the high school library. In Sioux City Public School, librarians say district standards meet or exceed some of the standards being proposed in the state capitol. Schulten said proposals are examples of punching down politics. A number of the books being raised in the current discussions about restrictions are by LGBTQ authors and writers of color. It's disgusting, Schulten said. It doesn't do any good. The forum was the first held by the League of Women Voters since last October 2022 to feature members of both parties. Henderson was unable to attend the October event because of a scheduling conflict, and no other Republican candidates for the legislature went either. While Henderson and Schulten were able to attend the Saturday Forum, fellow Siouxland legislators Kevin Allens, Jacob Bossman, and Rocky DeWitt did not make it to the Forum. Initially, the League of Women Voters of Sioux City was set to have its first 2023 Legislative Forum in January, but that had to be scrapped due to a snowstorm. I was pleased that we had two people show up, Dagan Simmons, the chapter president said. Uh, excuse me, that's Dagna Simmons. I thought that they talked intelligently. I was pleased with the number of people from the audience who asked questions. They covered a wide range of topics. Schulten said events such as the League of Women Voters Forum represent what democracy is all about. Henderson was appreciative too, but joked about what happens after doing a two-hour event following a week at the legislature. I do need a whole day's worth of recovery when I come back, he said. 
Our next story, housing starts ticked up in Sioux City and North Sioux City in 2022. Big development proposed in South Sioux City. Housing units added in Sioux City and North Sioux City picked up in 2022 compared to the year before. And while the number fell in South Sioux City, a development under consideration could turn that trend around. But regardless of the positive momentum, affordable housing, be it in the form of a house, apartment, duplex, mobile home, or townhome, remains scarce throughout the metropolitan area. In 2022, 254 housing starts, 87 single-family residences, and 167 multi-residential units were tallied in Sioux City. The year before, the total was 173, according to Sioux City Economic Development Director Marty Daugherty. Previous data for 2021 had showed a similar, or excuse me, a smaller number of housing starts, but as Daugherty noted, year-to-year data can be muddled when projects carry over from one year to the next. South Sioux City added only 15 dwellings in 2022, all single-family homes, compared to 20 the year before. Neither South Sioux City nor Sioux City itself has come anywhere near the record-setting high-water mark of housing starts in 2020 when Sioux City counted 520 new residences and South Sioux City added 355. Sioux City's housing portfolio began to grow appreciably in about 2016 after some comparatively slow years. Supply chain issues and a surge in the price of building materials was believed to have been behind the slowdown in Sioux City in 2021. It's very encouraging that in 22, we went up to 254, Dr. We think we're returning to that upward trend that we have been seeing for the last five or six years. Several years of strong supply growth, however, has not been enough to satisfy the ravenous demand for shelter. We have a huge, huge shortage of housing and a need for more housing. That's across the board in every category, Doherty said. Just generally, we need more housing. In North Sioux City, 39 dwellings were added in 2022, consisting of 14 single-family homes, four duplexes or townhomes, and 21 multi-residential units. It was the largest number of new housing units added in North Sioux City going back at least six years, though the year-to-year fluctuation in housing construction, there is a relatively small 31 units were added in North Sioux City in 2021. The price just went up through uh, though South Sioux City had the smallest number of housing starts in 2022 of the three cities, figures provided by the city contained a salient data point. The total estimated cost of the 15 homes was more than $5 million. The average estimated price tag among them was about $338,000. Most were fairly modest. One of them, a 16,000 square foot house with a 600 square foot attached garage was estimated to cost about $300,000. That goes to the cost of building the home. And obviously the developers are just going to pass it on to the buyer, said Oscar Gomez, South Sioux City Assistant City Administrator. And that's one of the things that we saw in the last year. 
that it's so expensive to build. What used to cost anywhere between 250000 or so, and now it's 300000 or maybe even 310000 Housing availability in Sioux City has been lacking for some time, Gomez said. We've met with all the bankers here locally, and that's the first thing they say, that there's not enough inventory out there for people to buy. But there is some hope on the horizon. A workforce housing development under construction in South Sioux City would add 110 single-family homes at what is considered an affordable price point in the range of 250000 to $300,000, plus 300 higher-end apartments. The proposal would take advantage of the Federal Opportunity Zone program, which gives tax incentives to developments and communities that are considered economically distressed. The city would partner with developer Roy Perry of R. Perry Construction in a public-private partnership and pay for the housing development through tax increment financing that according to City Administrator Lance Hedquist. It's a significant project, Hedquist said. A vote on that proposal is expected March 9th. The slow pace of housing construction last year in South Sioux City, Gomez said, was at least partially attributable to higher interest rates. At the beginning of 2022, the Federal Reserve's target interest rate was about zero. By the end of the year, the central bank had raised the rate above 4%, in response to high inflation. Interest rate hikes work against inflation because higher interest rates cause buyers to shy away from major purchases financed with loans, notably mortgages, which in turn causes sellers to lower their price. The reverse is true of low interest rates. Cheap loans make big purchases like homes more attractive and more attainable, which gooses demand, which in turn drives up price. Consumers normally pay higher rates than the Fed's target rate, which is the interest rate charged to banks. When banks issue loans, the interest rate is partially a reflection of the rates charged by the Fed, along with other factors including the borrower's creditworthiness and the necessity of turning a profit on the loan. But the Fed's rate is an underlying constant that appears in the interest rates of nearly all loans, regardless of individual individual circumstances. When you have rates that are two and a half percent, and then all of a sudden, now they're at 7%, it's a double hit on the consumers that are looking to build a house. Gomez said, on a $400,000 house, today's interest rate would add between $1,000 and $1,500 to each month's mortgage payment, compared to the prevailing interest rates before the rate hikes begin. You are listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Printed Handicapped. Reader today is Dave Sourman. Normally, we would turn at this particular time to the obituaries, but I do not see any published for this Monday, February 27th, so we will continue with the news. Uh, This just in, a 16-year-old male charged in a Sunday morning armed robbery in Lamar's. The story comes to us from Earl Horlick. A juvenile male has been charged in the armed robbery that occurred at a convenience shop on Sunday morning in Lamar's. At around 8.22 in the morning Sunday, the 16-year-old entered the Brew Coffee Shop 
346 Plymouth Street Southwest displaying a handgun to employees. According to the Lamar's Police Department, the suspect allegedly cut telephone lines, threatened and detained employees for 20 minutes before stealing money, liquor, and personal items from them. The suspect fled on foot and Lamar's police were able to track his movement with the help of businesses and residential video cameras. Officers also investigated several tips which led them to a residence on 3rd Avenue Northwest where the juvenile was taken into custody. Stolen items were recovered and so was a replica handgun that was allegedly used in the commission of the crime. The Lamar's Police Department was assisted by the Plymouth County Sheriff's Office, the Iowa State Patrol, and community members in this investigation. Here's some uh, basketball scores that you might be interested in. In Iowa, Dallas Center Grimes over Council Bluffs Lincoln, 57 to 54. Norwalk over Sioux City West, 71 to 43. Sioux City East beat Johnston, 63 to 60. Uh, in Nebraska, Fremont uh, beat Norfolk, 67 to 55. Oakland Craig over Omaha Nation, 61 to 49, and Why Not over Wausau, 68 to 45. And in South Dakota, Dakota Valley over Lenox, 89 to 52, and Yankton over Spearfish, 66 to 39. Our next story comes to us from the Associated Press. Economists expect recession to start later than predicted. A majority of the nation's business economists expect a United States recession to begin later this year than they had previously forecast after a series of reports have pointed to a surprisingly resilient economy despite steadily higher interest rates. 58% of 48 economists who responded to a survey by the National Association for Business Economists envision a recession sometime this year the same proportion who said so in the NABE survey in December. But only a quarter of those think a recession will have begun by the end of March. Only half the proportion who had thought so in December. The findings reflect a survey of economists from businesses, trade associations, and academia were released on Monday. A third of the economists who responded to the survey now expect a recession to begin in the April to June quarter. One-fifth think it will start in the July through September quarter. The delay in the economists' expectations of when a downturn will begin follows a series of government reports that have pointed to a still robust economy even after the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates eight times in a strenuous effort to slow growth and curb high inflation. In January, employers added more than a half a million jobs and the unemployment rate reached 3.4%, the lowest level since 1969. And sales at retail stores and restaurants jumped 3% in January, the sharpest monthly gain in two years. That suggested that consumers as a whole who drive most of the economy's growth, still feel financially healthy and willing to spend. 
At the same time, several government releases also showed that the inflation has shot back up in January after weakening for several months, fanning fears that the Fed will raise its benchmark rate even higher than was previously expected. When the Fed lifts its key rate, it typically leads to more expensive mortgages, auto loans, and credit card borrowing. Interest rates on business loans also rise. Tighter credit can then weaken the economy and even cause a recession. Economic research released on Friday found that the Fed has never managed to reduce inflation from the high levels it recently reached without causing a recession. Our next story, China has accused the U.S. of bullying with new illegal sanctions. China on Monday accused the United States of outright bullying and double standards in leveling what it called illegal sanctions on Chinese companies as part of U.S. actions against Russia's Wagner Group and related companies and individuals. The entities were targeted for their role in the war in Ukraine and mercenary activities, including human rights abuses in Africa. The sanctions have no basis in international law or authorization from the Security Council and are typical illegal unilateral sanctions and long-arm jurisdiction. Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said at a daily briefing. The punitive measures were seriously harming China's interests, and China strongly rejects and deplores that, and has logged solemn complaints with the United States side, Mao said. While the U.S. has intensified its efforts to send weapons to one of the parties to the conflict, resulting in an endless war. It has frequently spread false information about China's supply of weapons to Russia, taking the opportunity to sanction Chinese companies for no reason, she said. This is outright bullying and double standards. The Treasury and State Departments announced the moves in coordinated statements that targeted dozens of Wagner Group affiliates including some in the Central African Republic and the United Arab Emirates, as well as the president of Russia's Kalashnikov concern, the original manufacturer of the AK-47 assault rifle. Wagoner, a private Russian military company, has been involved in the heavy fighting in the eastern side of Ukraine. The sanctions also hit the Chinese company uh, Changsha, Tiani Space Science and Technology Research Institute company LTD, also known as Spacity China, which has supplied Wagner Group affiliates with satellite imagery of Ukraine that support Wagner's military operations there. A Luxembourg-based subsidiary of Spacity China was also targeted. Our next story, Michigan power crews work California recovers after storms. <clears throat> Some Michigan residents faced a fourth straight day without power as crews worked to restore electricity to more than 165,000 homes and businesses in the Detroit area after last week's ice storm. In hard-hit southeastern Michigan, the state's two main utilities, DTE Energy and Consumers Energy, reported about 165,000 homes and businesses without power on Sunday night. Wednesday's ice storm coated lines and trees with half an inch of ice or more. California, meanwhile, was getting a brief break on Sunday 
from a powerful weekend storm that left Los Angeles area rivers swollen to dangerous levels and brought snow to low-lying areas. Uh, in our next story, Dilbert Scott Adams lose distributors over racist remarks. The distributor of the Dilbert comic strip says it will sever ties with creator Scott Adams over his recent racist comments. Andrews McNeil Universal said in a statement issued on Sunday that Adams' comments were not compatible with the company's core values. The company also operates the popular Go Comics website, which scrubbed Dilbert from its site by Monday morning. Dozens of newspapers nationwide have said they will no longer run Dilbert, which started in 1989. Adams said on its YouTube channel on Monday that he did not consider the move censorship, but rather a business decision. Our next story, a last-minute problem keeps SpaceX rocket and then the astronauts grounded. A last-minute technical trouble forced SpaceX to call off an attempt to launch four astronauts to the International Space Station for NASA. The countdown was halted on Monday with just two minutes remaining until liftoff from Florida. SpaceX delayed the launch until at least Thursday. The problem involved the engine ignition system. Strapped into the capsule atop the Falcon rocket were two NASA astronauts, one Russian cosmonaut, and one astronaut from the United Arab Emirates. Officials said the problem involved ground equipment used for loading the engine ignition fluid. The launch team could not be sure there was a full load. A SpaceX engineer likened this critical system to a spark plug for a car. Our next story is about a movie um, Cocaine Bear, I believe it's a movie, uh, gets high with uh, $23 million and another movie, Ant-Man Sinks Fast. Uh, Sunday studio estimates say the gonzo R-rated horror comedy, Cocaine Bear, sniffed up $23 million in its opening weekend, while Marvel's movie Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, shrank unusually quickly in its second weekend. Quantumania was still number one with an estimated $32 million in ticket sales in the United States and Canadian theaters, but the Ant-Man sequel was hit by some of the worst reviews and audience scores of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it dropped a steep 67% in its second weekend. The 1970s set Christian drama, Jesus Revolution, also debuted strongly, launching with $15 million. Uh, let's see, Jake Paul takes first ring defeat by split decision to Fury. YouTube star Jake Paul has suffered the first defeat of his professional boxing career. He lost a split decision Sunday night to Tommy Fury in Saudi Arabia. Paul knocked down the unbeaten Fury with a short left hand early in the final round of their cruiserweight bout but the younger half-brother of heavyweight champion Tyson Fury controlled long stretches of the eight-round meeting at uh, Dayara Arena in Saudi Arabia. Two judges scored about 76-73 to 73 for Fury, while the third favored Paul, 75-74. to 74. The 23-year-old Fury is the first true professional boxer fought by Paul. Kyle Busch 
gets his first RCR victory in Fontana's NASCAR farewell. Kyle Busch, race car driver, sent Fontana off in style. The veteran stormed up from the back after an early penalty and earned his first victory for Richard Childress Racing while winning on his Southern California track for the fifth time. Bush held off Chase Elliott and Ross Chastain in NASCAR's final race on the gloriously weathered asphalt at Auto Club Speedway, which will soon be demolished to make room for a half-mile track. Bush drove his Chevrolet to victory in only his second race with RCR, which scooped him up in December after his 15-year tenure with Joe Gibbs racing ending. The Union Pacific will replace its chief executive officer. Union Pacific announced plans Sunday to replace its chief executive later this year after a hedge fund that holds a $1.6 billion stake in the railroad went public with its concerns about his leadership. The managing partner of Soroban Capital Partners, Eric Mandelbalt, said in a letter that the Omaha-Nebraska-based railroad has lagged behind its peers during Lance Fritz's tenure over the past eight years and that a leadership change is overdue. The hedge fund has been privately pursuing its interests to oust Fritz at least since last year. Union Pacific has repeatedly and significantly failed to teach its potential or reach its potential under Mr. Fritz's leadership uh, Mandibalt wrote, Union Pacific is ranked the worst in safety, volume growth, revenue growth, cost management, EBIT, which is earnings before interest and taxes, and total shareholder return. These are highly underwhelming results, despite Union Pacific having the premier railroad franchise in North America. Mandibalt urged the railroad to hire former chief operations officer Jim Venna, who helped overhaul Union Pacific's operations several years ago. But the railroad's board said in a statement that it had been working with a leadership consultant since last year to identify the best internal and external candidates for the job. Venna was brought into Union Pacific in 2019 from Canadian National to help the railroad change to a new operating model that relies on fewer, longer trains and significantly fewer employees and locomotives to move freight. But Venna left after less than two years on the job. Nearly all of the major U.S. freight railroads have adopted that model since CSX first began using it in 2017, after it was pressured by a different hedge fund to make changes. Although rail unions have expressed concerns that this precision scheduled railroading model has made the industry riskier because workers are spread so thin after nearly one-third of all rail jobs have been eliminated over the last six years. The unions say these practices make incidents like Norfolk Southern's fiery derailment in Ohio earlier this month more likely, but the railroads have defended their safety records. UP's head independent board member Michael McCarthy praised Fritz in a statement Sunday for helping grow the railroad's profits through uncertain times of the pandemic and through the challenges of last year's bitter contract negotiations with its 12 unions. He has capably led our company during a time of significant challenges and change, 
positioning Union Pacific to deliver long-term sustainable value for shareholders and customers, McCarthy said. We are immensely grateful to have Lance's continuing leadership and support, and we know he will ensure a smooth transition. The railroad did post a $1.6 billion profit in the fourth quarter, but over the past year it has struggled at times to handle all of the shipments companies ask it to deliver. Twice, regulators ordered Union Pacific to deliver emergency shipments to livestock producers, foster farms, to ensure that the company would not run out of feed for the millions of chickens that it raises. The U.S. Surface Transportation Board also held a special hearing in December to examine the way Union Pacific puts its short limits on shipments to try and clear up compensation on its rail network because the railroad has been using that tactic much more than other major freight railroads. Union Pacific has been steadily improving its performance since last spring as it hired hundreds of additional employees to operate its trains. Fritz said in a statement that he has been honored to lead the railroad. He's worked for the last 22 years. He praised Union Pacific's employees and he touted the railroad's performance without directly addressing the hedge fund's criticism. Union Pacific has embarked on a transformative journey that will result in stronger, more consistent service for our customers with enhanced earnings, growth, and value creation for our shareholders, Fritz said. Union Pacific is one of the nation's largest railroads with a network of 32,000 miles, 52,000 kilometers of track in 23 western states. And here's a sports story. Last second shot lifts the wolf pack. Western Christian returns to state after edging West Lyon. Caden Van Regenmorter's floating jumper at the buzzer lifted Western Christian to a thrilling 67-66 win over West Lyon in a Class 2A substitute finals Saturday night. <clears throat> in the last second shot, capping a furious rally by the Wolfpack, who trailed by 16 points with around four minutes to play. Western Christian, 20-3, advances to the Boys State Basketball Tournament for the 23rd time. The Wolfpack, the number three seed, will face number six seed Monticello at 12.15 p.m. on March 7th at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. West Lyon, which finished the season at 18-5, led most of the Saturday night game at MOC Floyd Valley High School in Orange City. The Wolfpack's uh, Yushan Maritz, excuse me, Harritz, hit a three-point shot near half court as the first quarter buzzer sounded to tie the score at 17. But the Wildcats outscored Western 17-6 in the second quarter to grab a 34-21 lead at halftime. The Wildcats expanded their advantage to 15 points after the intermission, but the Wolfpack went on a 10-4 run at the end of the quarter to close the gap to 48-39, entering the final stanza. In the final four minutes, the Wolfpack outscored West Line 23-6 as they mounted an improbable comeback. Chandler Polima hit a pair of three-pointers in the closing moments, the last coming with six seconds to play, which cut the margin to 66-65. The Wolfpack fouled on the next possession, sending a West Lyon player to the line where he missed his free throw. Van uh, Regamorter grabbed the rebound and drove the length of the court, launching an off-balance shot from the baseline just outside the lane as time expired. Another sports story, Remsen St. Mary's earns its seventh straight trip to the state tournament. Uh, Colin Holman 
Normally he sets up on the low block when Rums and St. Mary's has the ball, with the Horks trailing Gullen, uh, Heelan Catholic, 35-33 with less than four minutes left in the game. Though the six foot four post player using the screen popped out behind the three-point arch and buried the shot, it was a huge three, the sophomore said. It was a momentum changer for the game. The play, which brought Rems and St. Mary's fans to their feet in the Lamar's High School Gymnasium, gave the Hawks their first lead since early in the third quarter. They never trailed again, holding Heelan scoreless over the next four minutes. Hitting some key free throws down the stretch, St. Mary's salted away a 49-38 victory over their rivals in a Class 1A substitute final, sending the Hawks to their seventh straight Boys State basketball tournament. St. Mary's will look to win its first state title, beginning with a quarterfinal contest versus Gladbrook Rhinebeck at 3.45 p.m. March 6th at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Heelan and St. Mary's, two Catholic high schools separated by less than 10 miles, split their two regular season meetings. The rubber match Saturday turned into a defensive struggle for much of the game, as both teams struggled in the first half to hit shots for or find open looks. I thought Heelan played outstanding defense, Rims and St. Mary's co-head coach Scott Rudin said. I thought they pushed us out further than we normally run our offense. It took a little while for us to adjust to that. The Hawks led 12-11. to Thank you so much for listening to this Sioux City Journal reading for February 27, 2023. Thank you for listening to this Irish program.